Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 3. Tonight in our study of Philippians, we come to the 15th verse of this third chapter. And if we're not very careful, we could easily overlook a very important truth that we find in this verse, and one that's actually essential to our functioning in our Christian lives. In fact, the statement that Paul makes here in this 15th verse is the very beginning of how we are in our Christian lives to make choices, how we're faced with many different possibilities, and how do we know what choices that we're supposed to make. In our lesson last week, we were talking about how to maintain the growth of your Christian life and about how the goal of our Christian lives is to come into conformity to Christ, to be made like Him. And there are decisions that we have to make along the way as we're on that journey about what God would have us to do. How can we know what God's will for our life really is? That's the subject that I'd like to talk to you about tonight. How do we determine the right way to go? I just want to read one verse of Scripture tonight. That's just its 15th verse. Stand with me, please, and we'll read this and have a word of prayer and then get into our study. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for those who have gathered tonight to hear your word. Lord, uh, just open it up before us. Help us to learn this subject. Get a little bit more knowledge into our minds about how we can know your will for our lives. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect. I think before we can actually get into the subject tonight, talking about the will of God, we really need to understand that statement. What does Paul mean when he says, as many of you as are perfect? Back in verse number 12, we saw this same word, perfect. And there, we were very clear about this, that when Paul was speaking of perfect, that he was not claiming sinless perfection that he knew very well that there was no way in his life, in this quest that he had to become like Christ, to be conformed to Christ. He was constantly pursuing the goal of perfection, but he knew very well that in this life he would not reach it. And the reason he knew that is because we are all in a corrupted body. We live in this body. We won't be free of this body until we die. And Paul explains that to us in Romans chapter 7, that there is this struggle that's constantly going on in the Christian life. So when Paul uses the word perfect here in verse number 15, he's not talking about perfection in the sense of sinless perfection. He he knows that he won't reach that because that is the ultimate conclusion of another doctrine of God's word, which is glorification. That's when we die and when we receive a body that's made just like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we're free from sin. That's when we're perfect. So how does Paul say this then? As many of us, or let us therefore as many as be perfect. What does he mean there? Well, it seems to be a contradiction. It looks like a contradiction with verse number 12. But there has to be a solution to this because the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He could not make a mistake like this. He couldn't make a statement that would in any way be contradictory to what's already written in God's Word, and especially something that he said himself, because he's speaking under inspiration. So the answer to the dilemma is really actually a very simple one. Uh, Paul is using 
perfection in verse 15 in a different way in verse number 12. Now, verse number, uh, here in verse number 15, he's speaking about being mature. And so we could say, as many of us as are mature. And what he means is those who have grown from their baby stages of Christianity, which is the place where all of us start out, that we are, have become people who are adults in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had a complaint against the, some of the Corinthians because of the selfishness and the bickering that was going on in the church. And that was an indication that they were still baby Christians. And so he called them carnal. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, where you see that word carnal, the meaning of it is simply immature. And so they were baby Christians. Now, the point that Paul is trying to make in our text here in in this 15th verse is that those who are mature Christians, they will understand all that he's been talking about in these 14 verses that were preceding. They'll understand when he talks about uh, giving up everything for Christ, when he speaks of uh, counting all of the things that we thought were good in our lives, things that were advantages to us, things that were in the plus column for us. He counts them all as refuse. And he knows that these people who are mature Christians, they will understand that. They'll realize what he's trying to get across. They will keep pressing on for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus because they have become mature Christians. And so he says here, let those of us who are of mature mind or mature have the same mind. Let us keep working. Let us keep pursuing. Let us keep practicing the principles of the faith that will bring us closer and closer and make us like Christ. Now, naturally then, to be like Christ must mean that we have to follow God's will. We'll learn God's will and we'll apply God's will to our lives. Now, he allows here that there are some who would not be entirely clear about what God's will is for their life because they are immature Christians. And so there are some people who would act contrary to what he had taught. And you look at the tone of Philippians and you find that there were some in that church that had this problem. They were, seemed to be a little bit contrary to the things that Paul was teaching. For instance, in Philippians 4, verse number 2, he says, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And so they hadn't yet reached that part where everybody in the church is in agreement. So we have this question then. How, how is it that we can know God's will? And the answer is really in the second half of this verse. If in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. God will reveal it unto you. Now that's where we want to start. Number one tonight is how does God reveal himself? Oh, there's one one thing that we surely can't miss from the fact that we have a Bible, the fact that we have the written word of God, There must be a desire in God for him to reveal himself. He wants us to know something about him, and that's what the Bible is. I mean, it's a book to tell us who God is. There's a lot of things that we could consider under that heading. We could talk about uh, inspiration of Scripture. We can speak about Bible versions. We can talk about the problem with that and with uh, Scripture preservation. And I'm actually going to go into that next week. I I have a three-part kind of mini-series on the Word of God and how important God's Word is to our lives. So we are going to get into those kinds of things. But it makes sense that if God has given us this book in the first place, that he would intend to keep this book pure, 
that he would keep this revelation of himself intact so that all generations of men would be able to have the same revelation of God. We would understand God in exactly the same way. So it couldn't be the purpose of an all-wise God to allow his word to become so perverted that we would not understand who God is. Then we could also discuss uh, the foolishness that God would give us a book of Revelation, and yet with this Bible that we have in our hands and millions of these Bibles being printed every year, that still people would ignore the Word of God and they would make up their own minds about who God is. They ignore completely the Word of God. And so you have people that say things like that, like, I I really can't believe in hell. I I do not believe that God is a God, or I don't want to believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. And that's just one of the many, many doctrines that people outright deny because they've made up their own minds and they have some other idea of who God is. But this is the God that is revealed in Scripture. It's the written word of God that God has given us to reveal himself. So we have to understand that this is a desire of God to reveal himself. Well, how does God do that? Well, first of all, God has revealed himself by his power in nature. God revealed himself by creating a world. Man comes on the back end of this, of course. Man was the last thing that God created, and then after that, God stopped creating And when God breathed the breath of life into Adam, Adam woke up to a world that was around him that had to come from somewhere. Adam was able to see God's creation, but he was also advantaged by something else, and that is he had God who spoke personally with him, God who walked with him and talked with him. And Adam was able to have fellowship with God that no person uh, in the history of the world has ever been able to do. Now, all men that come after Adam since Adam fell, do not have that same pre-fallen condition to be able to see God and talk with God and commune with God as Adam did. Adam lost it, and every person who came after Adam also lost it. So we don't experience God in exactly the same way that Adam did before he fell. But still, God has revealed himself in creation. I mean, the creation didn't pass away. And so every person that comes into the world is able to behold the power of God through things that he has created. And we could go to several different verses of Scripture that plainly tell us that. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Romans 1, verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul, preaching to those Greeks and Romans or whoever might have been there on Mars Hill at Athens, mainly Greeks, I'm sure, he says, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So God has revealed himself, his power, his existence in nature. Now the problem then for every uh, atheistic person is who is the first cause? 
I mean, deny God and deny creation, deny everything that you see around you, deny all the evidence, but you still have to come back to this question, who is the first cause? And so the atheist, if he wants, he can go back to his big bang, and we can start there if we want to, but where did that speck come from that exploded into a universe? And then what's beyond the universe? I mean, we have to answer those kinds of questions. Who is the first cause? Well, God's desire is to reveal himself, and he's done that in creation. Now, next, God reveals himself by his purpose in Scripture. Now, we began with the Scriptures just a moment ago. We have a written record that God has given. That's God's holy word. And the word was written to reveal that there is a God, but not just that there is a God, but what his purpose is. All of us in this room tonight, I am confident of this, that you know what God's purpose is, because I always remind you of it, and hopefully you haven't forgotten it. God's purpose is to receive all glory to himself, and that's the purpose of creation, that's the purpose of man, that's the purpose of everything that God has put into this world, and that is that we would glorify God with everything that is here. And some people are confused about this because if you say, well, everything that's ever been created will ultimately give God glory, then they come up with the question, how does hell glorify God? Well, it must because God created it and God allows evil into the world because somehow that's going to glorify him and the way it does is because God shows his great power by overcoming evil, by displays of his justice and all the things that God does in that way. That demonstrates God's glory. And then there are are people who ask questions like, well, how could the crucifixion be for God's glory? And, And that may be hard for people to understand. How could Jesus dying on a cross, how could that be for God's glory? Well, the cross is not the defeat of Christ. The cross is the victory for Christ because only through his death could there be a resurrection? And only through a resurrection could Jesus show that he has power over sin and death, and so thereby God is glorified. And Jesus speaks about this. I want you to turn to John 17 for just a minute. And here is where we read the great high priestly intercessory prayer of Jesus. And we studied the Gospel of John. You may remember that we called this chapter the real Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6 is the model prayer, but here is the real Lord's Prayer. And this was what was prayed just before Jesus was crucified. If we look at John 17, starting in verse number 1, it says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And that is spoken right before Jesus went to the cross. And what Jesus is praying there is that the cross will glorify God. Certainly Jesus knows there's a resurrection coming and that will glorify God. So the purpose of the crucifixion was for God's glory. But in these very same verses that we just read, we actually find the most magnificent way that God reveals himself. And that is thirdly, by his personality in the Son. 
God has shown himself in nature by the creation. He reveals his purpose by the scriptures. But the most significant way that God has revealed himself is through the personality of the Son. Jesus says, and this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John chapter 1 contains the definitive statement on this. I don't have time to read the first 17 verses, but here's what John writes in the 18th verse. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So God has revealed himself physically in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the personal revelation of God. He is the personality of God because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's one with the Father. And that's why Jesus could say to Philip, He that has seen me has seen the Father. And so that's how God has revealed himself. In nature, in Scripture, and God reveals himself through the Son. Well, we see then that God's desire is to reveal himself. But does God just want us to know that he exists? Is that all that God has revealed about himself? We've already said that God's purpose is his glory. So God is going to instruct us on how we can give him glory. And his instructions are what we call God's will. We give God glory by doing God's will. Now, it took us a long time to get to this point, but this is really the main part of the message tonight. God will guide us. God will instruct us. So number two is, where do we receive instruction? Now, Paul says in our text verse, And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Now, the Philippians must understand that as they come to maturity, that God will guide them. God will instruct them how that they can come to the same conclusions that Paul came to. They'll begin to understand why Paul says what he says, and they will come into agreement with him as they understand the will of God. Now, there are certain methods of instruction that God has given for us so that we might be able to know his will. Now, what I want to say first, and this is not the first answer on your listening sheet, so we're not ready for that just yet, But God will instruct you if you trust him. There has to first be this desire to do God's will. You're not going to look for God's will if you don't desire it. And if you don't desire it, then certainly you're not going to find it. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived next to Jesus, said this. He said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. If you haven't done this, you ought to Just underline the word trust in that verse because that is the key to the concluding statement in verse number 6. He shall direct thy paths. You must truly believe that God will direct your paths and that God wants to reveal his will. And if you truly believe that, I promise you, God will reveal his will to you. So how does he instruct us in his will? Well, I've called the first way... A good way. A good way that God instructs us in his will. And this is externally. A good way that God shows you what his will is, is an external method. And what I mean is something that's outside of you. You look at something that's outside of you. It's by looking around, and particularly by looking at one thing, and that is the example of others. You can see other Christians, that how they live, 
and you can see the blessings that are in their lives, and you mark them and you follow their example. If they're being blessed by God, if they are content, if they have the right spirit, if they're worshiping God, if they're enjoying God, if there's joy in their Christian life, something must be going right. They must be doing something right. And so you mark that person as an example, and you follow and do the same things that they do. Now, if you look down here at verse 17 in chapter 3, here's how Paul states it. Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. Oh, I love Paul's confidence in his faith. Uh, He wasn't fearful to use himself as an example. And that wasn't a prideful thing with Paul. Because here, again, is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this about himself. And God instructs him to say this about himself. Because Paul lived in such a way that Christ's power and Christ's will was seen in him. Now, God could have used someone else to write this about Paul. But he didn't. He said, Paul, you write this. You're an example to follow. So you tell people you are an example to follow. But Paul also says it. In other places, and he also says that there are other people that you can follow. There are other good examples. There were some right there in that church at Philippi. They were good examples, and Paul said, you can follow them too. They're headed in the same direction that Paul's going, so Paul just simply says, fall in line behind them, do what you see them doing. There are good examples in your own church. There are good examples here that you can fall in line behind. And if you are in line behind someone who's doing the right thing, others can fall in line behind you. And you all arrive at the same place. Now, you have to watch for those that are the good examples of the faith and do the things that they do, because if you do, you will achieve the same things that they achieve, and ultimately that is God's will for your life. But obviously, you have to follow the right examples. There are some people in the church, they're not good examples. And if you follow them, you're not going to get the right results. And I'm sure you're aware of this, that there are times as a pastor that I have to confront people about certain sins that are in their lives. And I have to tell them, because of this thing you do, you are limited in your ability to serve the Lord in this church. And you know what some people say immediately when you talk to them that way? They say, well, what I'm doing is not as bad as what someone else is doing. So what they're doing then is looking at the bad example. And they're comparing themselves to the bad example, and somehow they think that that justifies them in what they do. But the issue has never been what someone else does. The issue is not how someone else lives. The issue is how you live, because you are the one that answers to God. They answer to God for themselves. You answer to God for yourself. So you never look at that. Look, don't look at the bad examples and think, well, I'm doing okay. The issue is, are you serving Christ? And the issue is, do you do things that hinder or help your ability to serve Christ? One of the ways that you can make that determination is just go over to the 8th verse in chapter 4. And there Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So a good way to find out the will of God comes externally. Keep looking at good examples, and if you see in them things that are pure and are honest and are just and so on, as Paul says in that 8th verse, then you know that you're doing God's will when you follow them. 
Now, the second method of instruction that God gives us concerning his will is what we call a better way. And this is internally. There's something that is inside of you that enables you to know God's will. And perhaps better, I should say, there is someone who is inside of you that helps you to know God's will. And that's because at the very moment that you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a moment. And in this chapter, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about wisdom and telling them how that they can gain wisdom. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to call your attention first to verse number 6 for just a minute here. It says, How be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. And I just wanted you to see that word perfect there again because Paul is using it in this verse the same way that he does in Philippians 3 verse 15. He's speaking about mature. Now go down to verse number 9. He says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Sometimes you'll hear that verse read at funerals. And the preacher will say something like this. Well, that, this dear brother here, he, he's gone to heaven, and now he's able to see things that he didn't know before. Now he knows what God has prepared for him. But unfortunately, the preacher doesn't take time to read the very next verse because we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to find out what I have not seen nor ear heard because the next verse says, But God hath revealed them unto us. How? By his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So God has revealed it to us. Now there again you see God's revelation. God has revealed things to us through the Spirit. Go down to verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So you have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. And all of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it tells us there that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you have that internal witness that shows you the will of God. Now, the will of uh, the, the Holy Spirit, I should say, is in you every single day. He, he's there to teach you and to guide you, but you have to avail yourself of the Spirit's teaching. And there are so many people who simply ignore what the Spirit is saying. You have to access the will of God through the Spirit in a very special way. And the way that you do that is through prayer. Now, prayer is not always a formal thing. Prayer is not always getting down on your knees and getting into your closet all alone and and praying before God. That's not all there is to prayer. A prayer is not always being in church and standing up when everybody stands and somebody leads and you pray with them. Prayer is not always going at 5.30 to the prayer room over here and, and praying. Prayer is an open line of communication with God all of the time. And that means when you're thinking, when you're driving, when you're walking, when you're sitting, you just have that line of communication that's open where you are receptive to the Spirit's instruction. So you have that internal witness that there, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Jesus tells the disciples in John 16, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So the guidance of the Holy Spirit in truth 
It's how you learn how to walk in the will of God. So that's, there's a good way. There's a better way. But then God also instructs by the best way. And we'll call this eternally. God instructs us in an eternal way. I want you to look around the room tonight. The curtain over there is not eternal. Somebody made that. The chairs that you're sitting on tonight is not eternal. Somebody made that. The carpet, platform, podium, screen, projector, all of those things, somebody made those things. They aren't eternal. But there is something that we have right here in the room with us tonight that is eternal, and you hold it right in your hands. Peter says, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the Spirit through the obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, listen, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God, the Bible, is the eternal word of God, and it's the infallible source book for God's will. Anything that is contrary to the word of God is not God's will for your life. And conversely, anything that fits in with God's book is God's will for your life. Now, do you know what that means? It means that you will forever be seeking the will of God, but never really finding the will of God if you don't know the Bible. If you don't know the book, you'll be constantly seeking for God's will, but never finding it. David wrote in the Psalms, Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Things that are contrary to the will of God are false ways, and they're identified by knowing God's precepts. What's David speaking of? Well, he's speaking of the Word. What's the very next verse? All of you can quote it. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, I promise you this, that every Christian... Every Christian who struggles with wondering what God's will for his life is, is a Christian who really does not know very much of God's word. Now, does that mean that, well, the Bible's going to tell me whether I should change jobs and what job I should take? Will the Bible tell me or give me an answer as to whether I should buy a Ford or a Chevy? Nobody in the will of God drives a Chevy. I already know that. So you're not going to find... You're not going to find those kinds of answers in the Bible, but you will find things like this, that if the job that you decide to take leads you away from God's service, then it's not in the will of God. And if the car that you want to buy causes you to cut short in tithes and offerings and cheat God, then that's not in the will of God. See, the answers that you need to know are in God's book if you stay consistently in the Word. Now, what I have in my library... Over there, if you come into my office, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. And these are written by men of God. And all the books that I have read, that I have in my shelves, I do not see any of these people struggling to find out what God's will was for them. They don't write about such things. They're not struggling with finding God's will. What they're doing is they already know the Word of God. They studied the Word of God. That's why they've written those books. And the decisions that they make in their lives just are an outgrowth of knowing God's Word. And so you, you find out God's will by looking at the examples of others, by looking at the, or listening to the indwelling Spirit, and most of all, by staying consistently in God's Word. And see, God's Word tells you 
that the example that you're looking at is one that you can follow. That's how you determine it. Then also, when you're looking for God's will with the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with God's Word. And so that tells you very simply that the Bible, God's Word, undergirds all of this. And so if you don't know the Word of God, you're forever searching and never finding. Christians who don't know the will of God and always asking questions about it are Christians who do not spend enough time in God's book. Now, we go right back then to the very beginning of the message. God reveals himself. How does he reveal himself? Chiefly, it comes through the written word, and it comes through the divine living word, which is Jesus Christ. You know, I've always known that truth since I've been a Christian. That's never been a mystery to me. But when I went to the Shepherds Conference just a few weeks ago, I had that driven down into me like I've never had it driven into me before. In that conference, God's Word was definitely primary. God's Word was lifted up. Now, I'm used to conferences where you go and people toss their Bibles in the air, and I suppose that's one way of lifting up God's Word. And preaching where there's yelling at the top of the lungs and jumping on chairs and things like that. And one of the most vivid things that I can remember is one of the conferences we went to. The preacher was preaching. He goes back here to a railing that's on the back of the platform. Throws his leg up on top of the railing. When he does that, the audience is hooping and hollering and carrying on. But when you really boiled it down to the message that was preached and what was said in that message... You know, the truth of it is there was no abiding truth. There was nothing in that that lasted any longer than five minutes after it was over. Oh, it was exciting, and there was histrionics and all kinds of things like that, but where was the truth that was expressed? Where is something that is revealed that sticks with your soul? Now, here is the thing about it. What we need, what we need in preaching is faithfulness to God's Word, faithfulness to the text that we have before us, and preaching that text. Preaching that text in its context. That's what we need. We don't need all that other stuff that goes with it because we need the Word of God burned down into our very souls. Stay faithful to God's text. In the book of Nehemiah, it says, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. For all the people wept when they heard the words of God. I promise you this. God's word will have a profound effect on your life. You'll find out God's will by reading God's book. One of the things, as you've all noticed, that I did when we came back from that conference, is I just incorporated a time in our service where we just stand and read the Word of God. I don't do any explanations, and I'm preaching when I do that, but I just did it for this reason, because I wanted you to be aware that we must lift up the Word of God. Just reading the Word of God will bless you. It will do something for you. Now, I'm going to need to close the message tonight, but let me leave you with one more thought here. Questions about the will of God are asked in one of two ways. One is a wrong way and one is a right way. The wrong question is, what is God's will for my life? Can you believe that? That is the wrong question. What is God's will for my life? What is the right question? What is God's will? 
Now, that doesn't sound like much of a difference, does it? But there's actually a very profound difference between those two statements. And the difference is, in the first statement, the focus is on me. The focus is on me. The second question, the focus is on God. Now, here's the thing that we need to realize. God is already doing something in this world. God has been doing something for thousands of years. And the answer to all this is to find out what God is doing and get with his program where he's already going and get in line behind him. And I promise you that the real key to God's will for your life is always focusing on God. Ever always focusing on God. And let's do away with all of the religion and all the preaching that focuses on me. And focuses on you. Once we focus on God, we will pull together. We'll get where we need to be because we will be in the will of God. Praise God that we have teaching and preaching that lifts up a sovereign God. Exalts him above all. Keep the focus on God. And you'll always know God's will. That's where you'll find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And Lord, we, we, we're so happy that we can look into your word and find these little sayings of Paul and things that just, if you look at him just a little bit closer, you can find just real truth that he wants us to know. Bless, bless our people, Lord. Help us to do this very thing that we've been talking tonight. Help us to focus on you, and we know that we will find your will. Help us to focus on your word, because that is the revelation of the Almighty God. That's where we need to go to find out what you would have us to do. Bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.